I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/slash recommend today. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. What does the future hold for St. Louis and how do we get there? This is Nothing Impossible on KMOX. Welcome into Nothing Impossible, our show about St. Louis innovation. Michael Calhoun, along with, along with Travis Sheridan. How you doing today, Michael? Uh, not bad. Just uh, excited for some technology talk about St. Louis, and um, I've really been confused about these NFT things. So I'm excited that we're going to actually, not that I'm going to understand it after we're done with the interview either, but at the very least, it's a shot. <laughs> You know, I, I feel very conflicted and weird about NFTs. This It's all blockchain-related stuff because I'm a person who loves art and I'm a person who loves technology, and I do not get the two ma- mashed together. So I feel like, a, as the Internet says, a noob when it comes to that. So we're going to go to uh, one of the authorities, CNET News, and talk to their editor-at-large about uh, the blockchain and NFTs. Up next, we're going to introduce you to the newest uh, members of the NGA community, the NGA Accelerator, the geospatial startups that are coming to St. Louis. Yeah, eight different companies were selected, many from out of town, uh, actually all from out of town and most from out of state, attracting talent and companies from the coast to St. Louis because of NGA. Mapping technology, just one of the areas that St. Louis is cornering the market on. And then we're going to wrap up the show by talking with Steady MD. I, I have a feeling that telemedicine has had a big year. Just a feeling. Uh, it's been kind of forced into, the, uh, into normalcy, and now there's the opportunity to improve it and for entrepreneurs to capitalize on it. And so we're going to talk with uh, Steady MD, a St. Louis startup that's just had a big Series B venture capital round. Stay tuned. That's all coming up on Nothing Impossible on KMOX. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. 
Medela, the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. St. Louis Innovation with Michael and Travis. Nothing Impossible on KMOX. All right, welcome back to Nothing Impossible. Travis Sheridan here with Michael Calhoun, and I'm uh, going to jump in and talk with Jason Hall, the CEO of Greater St. Louis, Inc., and we're talking specifically about the NGA Accelerator. Jason, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you. So uh, we've all heard about the NGA, the National Geospatial Agency that's uh, building their new complex in North St. Louis. We've briefly talked on the accelerator, but tell us a little bit more about how that accelerator is evolving and what's new with it. Yeah, so it's, you know, it's really exciting. And I think it's, you know, it's really reflective of where the community is heading. We've held ourselves out in saying we are leaders in geospatial and location science evidenced by a nearly $2 billion headquarters uh, that the NGA is investing uh, in our uh, in our city and in our metro right now. But we know um, we need to keep investing in innovation. It's really critical that we stay um, on the cutting edge. So the genesis of this goes back to when Robert Cardillo was the director of the NGA, and we executed the the, this sort of first-of-a-kind partnership agreement with our state's innovation arm, the Missouri Technology Corporation, that created a framework for doing projects like this. At the time, there was no money behind it, but we were setting up the framework. And then um, because of that, we were able to ultimately secure over $4 million to stand up an accelerator so that where innovators, startups, entrepreneurs from around the country in this space are now coming to St. Louis to get the capital and support uh, that they needed. And all of that, uh, you know, uh, rose to the top yesterday when the first cohort of those companies uh, was announced. So really exciting and a bold step forward for this community leading around its strengths and being a leader in geospatial. Well, and, you know, it's not uncommon for the government to tap into and reach into the private sector for innovation. Earlier in the week, Microsoft announced a $21 billion contract with the Army to, de- uh, to develop augmented uh, reality headgear. So this is much smaller. Scale. We're going to knock a few zeros off here. The, the companies that are in this accelerator are getting $100,000 of uh, non-dilutive funding. But how important is this yeah. connection between uh, the government agencies and the private se- the private sector that's doing innovation, especially these startups. Well, it's critical. I mean, it's one of the ways, and and I think you saw this shift at the NGA under former director Tish Long and under uh, director Cardillo, where it really started, which is you can't find all the solutions you need with just internal innovation, that you really need to collaborate, partner, and tap into some of the entrepreneurial talent. In fact, that's one of the reasons NGA doubled down on St. Louis when Director Cardillo announced the decision to build the new headquarters in North St. Louis. He very specifically cited places like the T-Rex innovation community, the Cortex innovation community, and wanting to be proximate to them 
so that the NGA could be successful for the next hundred years. So it's absolutely critical because of the speed at which innovation is occurring. And then, of course, selfishly for St. Louis, we know that these kinds of investments, wherever they start, can lead to big things. And, you know, Travis, from, from, from your native California, I mean, the, the roots of Silicon Valley and everything that we know today uh, goes back to some uh, significant government investments like this, partnering with Fairchild Semiconductor and others to meet some of those national defense needs, but it leads to this legacy of innovation and investment uh, that's helped that economy prosper. And, and I'm hoping for the same types of things here in St. Louis. Well, can you tell us a little about a little bit about some of the companies? I think that you said there were eight startups selected for this uh, inaugural cohort. Can you tell us about a couple of them? Yeah, so I mean, they really run the gamut. I mean, first of all, really national in in scope. I I think uh, you know three of um, three of the first eight are coming from uh, the Boston area. You know, a big source of innovation. Again, bringing uh, them here. We're bringing uh, folks from California as well, both coasts, coming here. We had one local one uh, down from uh, Columbia, Missouri, at the University of Missouri, Stratodyne. So really kind of a neat mix, but really emphasizes how nationally significant this was. And then when you get into, you know, the substance of them, I mean, these are innovators at the leading edge, right? They're looking at developing next-generation satellite navigation systems, right? Things, you know, when we pick up our mobile phone device, right, and we're using satellite technologies when we're mapping how to get from point A to point B, we're using satellite technologies. There's a lot of innovation that enables these things we take for granted probably every day, and some of these companies are on the front end of that. We've got some in uh, the artificial intelligence area, you know, and that's a really exciting uh, um, aspect here. So just, you know, from data, machine learning, artificial intelligence, we're really kind of running the gamut, all united, though, in using location science to drive better decision making um, and, and uh, you know, help move our economy forward. You know, Jason, prior to smartphones, uh, it was my family's tradition every every Christmas, uh, once you were over 16 and had a driver's license, every Christmas you got a new Rand McNally uh, uh, atlas so that you could have the, la- have the latest maps. And I, I think about, like, how far how far our mapping technology has come. Like, you'd have to have a navigator sitting next to you that was pointing at this, like, identifying spots on the map in order for you to get to your location and now we just plug coordinates into our phone uh, and an automated voice takes us turn by turn and soon the cars themselves will take us turn by turn so it is it's really neat to have these types of technologies evolving in st louis we have a couple more minutes there's two things i wanted to talk to you about one is the the first this idea that you know focusing on an accelerator that is um, part of nga and looking at this uh you know particular sector is is really good part of St. Louis's DNA, right? Stadia has done this with sports uh, technology. Yeah. 630 has done it with FinTech. Uh, uh, Yield Lab has done it with agriculture. Talk a little bit about St. Louis's unique position in creating these accelerators that are hyper-focused. Yeah, well, it's, it, yeah, because you want to, you know, having 
people want to be around and connected to other leaders in their industry. So the whole idea with the you know with an accelerator, big picture, right, is to combine capital around bold ideas and early stage companies and get them connected to the broader um, ecosystem, set of relationships where they can be successful. In St. Louis, where we're going, we know to get ahead, to be globally relevant, we've got to focus on our strengths like financial services, biotech, ag tech, and in geospatial, one of those key emerging strengths. And so over the last, you know, eight years, we've really done an exceptional job of building these industry strengths and bringing people together to, to, to help innovators. And we're really reaping the benefits of that and seeing some of the thriving, um, you know, companies that come from that and the focus. You got to know what you stand for, right, to be able to attract others here. And that's what we're doing. And Capital Innovators, who is the partner on this that is delivering the program, you know, the Harvard Business Reviews had them ranked as one of the top 10 accelerators in the country. Sometimes we take that for granted uh, with the kind of outcomes they've produced. Um, so we're so honored to participate with them and, and focus on this new, uh, this new industry strength. Well, before I let you go, we had Bruce Katz on a couple of weeks ago, give us an update on the 2030 jobs plan and some of the stimulus uh, resources that are coming into town. How does this type of effort tie into the 2030 jobs plan? Well, um, it's going to be critical, right? I mean, we're going to be having an historic level of investment coming in the first wave from the rescue plan. You saw the president this week announce a $2 trillion um, infrastructure plan. We're making the kinds of investments, um, you know, in this country to ensure the next generation. The jobs plan is creating the focus. The capital creates the opportunity. And in, in specifically here in geospatial, one key aspect of this community plan is empowering the residents in the economic opportunities very locally. Um, whose neighborhood into which the NGA is is moving. And so we're going to have a, a pretty clear voice that we're getting nearly a half a billion dollars in the city of St. Louis. And the business community says that we're getting that because of need. And we need to invest um, in those critical neighborhoods and ensure uh, that they benefit, existing residents benefit from these opportunities. And it's one of the ways we address the black-white income gap uh, in our community and in this country. Great. Jason Hall, CEO of Greater St. Louis, Inc. Thanks for talking to us about the NGA Accelerator. Have a great day. All right. Thank you. And we'll be back with more Nothing Impossible right after this. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Now back to Nothing Impossible on the Voice of St. Louis, KMOX. This might have grabbed the uh, the eyes and ears of uh, St. Louisans. Uh, Jack Dorsey, of course, our native son who helped to co-found Twitter, selling his first tweet as an NFT, Travis. A non-fungible token. What does that mean? I still don't, I still don't get it. <laughs> and I, Let me also say this. I'm an avid collector of art, Michael. We've talked about this. Mm -hmm. I love art. I love physical art. I don't understand digital art, and I really don't understand NFTs. 
You know who might be able to help us understand this a little bit better? CNET's editor-at-large, Ian Shearer. Thank you so much for joining us, Ian. Absolutely. All right, so where do we even begin? Should we begin with uh, explaining what, what an NFT is? Or if I'm correct, it relies on the blockchain. Should we start yeah, with describing what that is? I'll let you take it away. There's a ton of really weird and kind of confusing words that come into all of this. So first off, non-fungible token means essentially something unique, right? Very basic, basic explanation. The token part is really fascinating. Uh, you may have heard of the blockchain. This is all related to Bitcoin, right? And the whole idea is that there's this kind of electronic ledger. You know, usually when you go into a, uh, we'll, we'll go say you go into a museum, right? And it says who, which family has donated this art piece to the museum. Well, that's kind of like the ledger. Instead, what we do. Um, uh, in the internet is that there's a whole copy of the whole thing out there that everyone has access to. And the way that it's kept honest is that everyone can see it. So they can see when it gets changed, they, they can say, well, wait a minute, that change wasn't, wasn't approved and all sorts of stuff like that. And as a result, that's why Bitcoin is starting to become really popular as a monetary system. And now why we're starting to see other ideas like these NFTs uh, become popular, too. It's essentially like owning a Bitcoin, but now something unique for art or for uh, the first tweet, as Jack Dorsey did, or for a an NBA video like, you know, of, of Michael Jordan getting that perfect dunk. Like all those things are now starting to become NFTs. So instead of it being tied to a monetary instrument like a Bitcoin, it's tied to something else of value, like a piece of art? Yeah, essentially. I mean, you know, the, the weird thing about all of this stuff is that the value of anything is basically based upon what we all agree on, right? Uh, sure. You know, the art has value only because of it's it, the value that we place on it and what the relative value from what you think you could get at auction for it, right? And if that value falls, so does the value of the art. Same thing goes for here. The NFTs, essentially, we don't really know what these things are worth. We see people bid for them online, like a basic auction, and then the price goes for what it does. So Jack Dorsey's first ever tweet was worth $2.9 million. Now, here's what's funny about it. The person who bought that does not own Jack Dorsey's first tweet. They own a, uh, essentially, think of it like a trading card of that first tweet. <laughs> but that trading card is like the perfect, unique, only one, only one of its kind trading card. So it's those kind of things that makes it a little weird. Like, you're not buying the art. You're buying the special, like, uniqueness uh, that everyone has placed on having that art. So it, it, it's, it's very weird, as is most of things related to Bitcoin, but uh, a lot of people seem to be really excited about it, especially artists who feel like this could be a way to actually make money on the Internet, something they find very hard to do. So does this mean that uh, Jack could just decide to make more cards based off the same tweet? 
And sell Not those? off the same tweet. That's the thing. The, the, the kind of the idea of this NFT thing is that it is unique in terms of your ownership of that thing, or the, I guess the <laughs> again the, the kind of the the trading card of that thing. They're not going to make more of them. Uh, that's why it's non fungible, right? It's unique. Um, so you know, there seems to be an agreement that they're not going to kind of recreate more and more and more because then the value would of course go down, down, down. Instead everyone's finding all of this other stuff. I mean, the NBA is a great example. The Top Shots, you know, these things, there's there's so many of them that it's very easy for them just to go through their archives. You've got musicians, they've got new music coming out all the time. Now they have a way for their super-duper fans to, you know, buy uh, the NFT of a certain song. And what also is being thrown around, again, this is all new and it may become completely confusing and it may change or whatever, but one of the things people are saying is that, well, maybe you could start, you know, a lot of people have fan clubs they used to run, right? And that thing has kind of gone away. Well, what if, you know, by having, having this NFT, I'm part of a fan club? And if I no longer care about the, this artist, I can just sell off my NFT to one of the other people who wants to be a super fan and now they're part of the fan club. And that fan club maybe gets VIP tickets or something else uh, back when we get back to normal. So that's it's all of these kind of experimentations trying to go on right now. I mean, this whole thing could collapse and become nothing, but this is part of what's weird about kind of these these monetary instruments is that right now people are just experimenting to see, well, okay, it seems like we all agree that this is worth something and we're going to kind of go forward with that. And we're talking with e, uh, Ian Shear, who's the editor of Large of, at CNET News. And uh, does... Um does that mean that if I buy a song or a highlight video that I can then uh, get the royalties from it? No royalties. <laughs> Just like you don't get the royalties from a, from a trading card, right? Uh, you don't own the photo. You don't own the person. You don't own that moment. You just own the trading card. So it, it, it's very similar in that regard. You're not, you're not really buying it. And, you know, look, I think that's what's going to be very fascinating about this whole thing going forward. You know, it, part of what's going on here, as I mentioned earlier, is the, the art world is trying to find a way to place value on their art that's different from what we do today. You know, today, it's all ones and zeros, right? I can take a piece of art that I love, and if I don't care about the artist, I can just copy it a million times and send it to all my friends, right? And suddenly that artist has lost out on a ton of money. But by having these NFTs and saying, well, Ian, your copy has specific value that no one else can have, then possibly they can kind of control and see, okay, well, maybe we can actually make a little bit more money from this. And I, again, it's, it's hard to tell where it's all going to go. As you can tell, even this conversation kind of goes in circles at some point, and it's kind of like, okay, well, how is this all going to play out? It's really hard. But I think what's going to be interesting about it is that it may end up becoming the new digital trading card. And we've seen trading cards, especially during the pandemic, are going off the charts. If you're in the if you're in the collectible world, you know, people are paying ridiculous amounts of money for new for the original Pokemon cards and they're unwrapping them online and all this stuff. So there's like this whole thing that's happened during the pandemic where people are doing this. So I'm really not shocked that the digital equivalent of all those Pokemon cards has suddenly become popular too. 
Well, one of the things that I find interesting, going back to the art piece again, uh, is this idea of tokenization and and provenance. Uh, because all too often, an artist makes their money on the initial sale, right? I am a I am a collector. I buy a piece of art from that from a particular artist, but the artist does not get to participate in the upside of subsequent sales. And with this type right. of tokenization, that does exist now, correct? In theory, yes, right? We haven't seen that much experimentation about uh, subsequent uh, sales yet, but it definitely does at least try to solve for the problem of, you know, all these ones and zeros, you can copy them and send them a million times. You know, one of the things that I thought was really interesting when I was talking to an artist about all of this NFT stuff is they said, look, you know, before the internet, (laughs) which feels like the dark ages, uh, you know, if you photocopied a piece of art, you know, you couldn't photocopy it a million times because, as we all know, those of us who used photocopiers back in the dark ages, uh, it would the quality would go down, right? You couldn't just copy, 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 copy. And I think that is something that the digital world really upset, right? There was no longer value on all the copies everyone had because they were all the same. They're just digital. They're ones and zeros. So being able to create that value is really, really fascinating. Well, what, one of the other questions I wanted to ask you is, who is making money on all of this? Uh, we've seen some astronomical art sales, but I've also looked at some of the platforms, and there's really complex fees associated with some of these platforms for the art auctions and, and trading card auctions. And, and that is, it costs uh, money to list, it costs money to bid, it costs money right. to change a bid. Like, so I always get suspicious when the uh, when the trans- people on the transaction side are making all the money, and the people on the that are trying to sell the thing have to rely on a hope and a prayer. Can you talk a little bit about how that's working out? You just described the entire world of finance, right? <laughs> sure. Absolutely. It's all about the fees. Um, you know, look, I think what's interesting about how Bitcoin works in general is that there's always an associated tax that goes along with it. And that is because we all pay to run the system. You know, if, if you think about the uh, the banks and the uh, the central bank that we have, right? The all of these things, we don't actually really pay fees to them every time we move money around, right? I I give you ten dollars, I don't have to give ten cents to the to the to the central bank. But really, what's going on is that someone has to pay for that whole system to work. And what typically happens is we pay through all the fees we pay to the banks and whatever else through our, you know, the little amount we get from our savings or from our credit cards or whatever else. Well, this is something where it comes to Bitcoin and when it comes to anyone else doing this blockchain stuff is that there's actually fees associated with being able to run the system. Right? The system itself doesn't just magically come out of nowhere. There are computers that have to process who owns what, that have to process every transaction. When you have millions of transactions happening every minute, then there's a lot of processing involved. And as a result, you have to pay someone, and that is why those fees show up, is that those fees are actually just to help run the whole system. So a lot of those fees make sense to me, but... The people who are making money, of course, there is people making money who are in the auction houses, but it seems as though that, it, from what I've heard, and again, this could all be different and changing, the fees seem to be pretty in line with what you would expect from something of this nature, right? 
uh, even when you're looking at Christie's or something else, you know, they don't charge you to have a blockchain, but they charge you to be able to use their services, to have access to their clients and all that type of stuff. Well, and how much has NFT helped normalize blockchain and blockchain helped normalize NFT? I mean, we're seeing a, num a number of big players now carrying Bitcoin on their balance sheets, a number of large corporations carrying Bitcoin on their balance sheets. Uh, are we getting to a place where this where the entire cryptocurrency sector is becoming a bit more normalized? It could be definitely that we're getting there. And I, I think, you know, to your point, we're starting to hear, for example, Tesla. You can now buy a Tesla car with Bitcoin. Uh, of course, you still have to pay your $100 deposit, which comes out to 0. 0.0003 whatever <laughs> Bitcoin. But, you know, the thing is that these things are, are definitely becoming more common. Uh, you know, I think the question I have uh, is that anytime we have a new currency, if you look through history, uh, there's a lot of disruption that comes with that currency. You know, the American dollar, before we had the Fed and before we really centralized everything, it used to go all over the place because it wasn't really tied to anything. And then the Fed helped to kind of solve that out, first with the gold standard, then the, the good faith and credit of the United States. We don't have that in Bitcoin, which is why you see it go from $9,000 of Bitcoin to $20,000 of Bitcoin, back to $7,000 of Bitcoin, up to $55,000, and it keeps moving around. I think as more people get into it, we'll find a way to stabilize that and and it will become a currency. Uh, but then everyone's going to have to get used to this idea of helping to run the system, right? I don't, mm -hmm. I don't really like the idea of paying a tax just to give you, you know, $10 because I bought a hot dog with you. And I think that is going to be the thing that people are going to have to kind of understand how this all works before it really takes off. Well, as we wrap up with Ian Shear, the editor-at-large of CNET News, talking about the blockchain and really about these NFTs, I'm wondering, Ian, are they all going for the huge dollar amounts that we've seen, for instance, with the Jack Dorsey tweet and some of the highlights? And also curious, what's the strangest NFT that you've seen for sale? <laughs> yeah, so uh, first off, the prices are all over the place, right? And uh, in fact, over the last week, we've seen some of the prices climb down quite a bit. So I'm not, I, I'm not sure exactly how this is all going to play out. I think there was a lot of excitement when it really started to take off. And also, you know, there, there was an economist I was uh, listening to recently who said that, you know, a lot of people have from the from this whole pandemic have been staying inside. They haven't been going out to dinners or really nice, you know, meals or to the bar or whatever. And so as a result, there's a lot of kind of money sitting in people's bank accounts. I know there are also a lot of people struggling and that's very different and it's very sad, but there's also a lot of people who are in their normal jobs and in their normal lives and haven't been spending much money. And as a result, we're starting to see them, well, I'm going to play with my money a little bit. And that's a little weird, but that's part of what what uh, people think is going on with this NFT thing, why it's been taking off. I think probably one of the weirdest things is that um, if you look up uh, on the Internet, there's a thing called the Nyan Cat. Um, this is, uh, the, once you look it up, if you go to Google, I promise it won't come back looking bad. Uh, it, it's this kind of, this rainbow cat going through the stars. It's very, very internet-y. Well, it went for, uh, it, it, 
it was, of course, turned into an NFT, and it ended up selling for $531,000. So, you know, a, a weird internet meme <laughs> that I've known about forever uh, that was created 10 years ago uh, that's pixelated and kind of ugly based on a Japanese pop song is now somehow worth a half a million dollars. And that is the wild, wild west of the Internet. Ian Share, editor-at-large at CNET, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Take care. And coming up next, we're going to take you into the telemedicine world and profile a St. Louis startup that's not only taking advantage of people wanting to get healthcare virtually, but has raised a lot in their Series B venture capital round. SteadyMD is next on KMOX. St. Louis Innovation with Michael and Travis. Nothing impossible on KMOX. And a St. Louis startup is in the telemedicine field. Have a feeling they've had a big year when it comes to virtual healthcare in the United States. And SteadyMD has just completed a large Series B venture capital round. Joining us on KMOX is co-founder and CEO Guy Friedman. Thanks for joining us, Guy. Thanks for having me. So, Guy, tell, start by telling us a little bit about uh, the company and, and what it is that you all do at SteadyMD. Sure, no problem. So, SteadyMD provides an on-demand provider workforce for digital health companies around the U.S. Um, that includes clinical operations, customized technology, and regulatory coverage in all 50 states. So, if you're a digital health company looking to scale and need a provider to write a prescription, have a visit with a patient, uh, order a lab. Um, basically, any, any digital health company needs a provider license in the state where the patient is sitting in order to operate. We provide that basically turnkey for them. When we first introduced listeners to SteadyMD, I, I want to say it was more of a customer-facing service. Is this uh, shifting more into a, a B2B kind of a, a model? Correct. Yeah, we still love and operate our consumer business, which is more or less the premier version of virtual primary care online. Uh, it's akin to a concierge medicine, but completely online with an aligned physician that's dedicated to you and your family via our technology. But the larger part of the business is now in the B2B space. And how have you seen that type of business change through the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's a bit, it's been a buildup over the last five, maybe maybe ten years, but really the last five years, there's been a tremendous amount of investment in digital health opportunities from labs, pers- uh, direct-to-consumer prescription companies, point solutions around various conditions like fertility, weight loss, diabetes, you name it, uh, aimed at consumers, employers, payers, uh, hospital systems. So all that investment has been really building up. And then uh, with the coronavirus, it just was like pouring gasoline on the fire in terms of having millions of people experiment with all these new digital health companies that have been uh, growing fast. But this was like um, an accelerant. So in the last year, a lot of companies have basically there, there was an event that happened that increased their utilization tremendously. And we were. Uh, positioned really well to help everyone because we had we had done a lot of the um, infrastructure and scaffolding around operating a 50-state digital health company in, over the past five years. 
And uh, the key insight we had was that other companies could really use that and, uh, and value it. And so that, that kind of uh, inspired us to go into the B2B business. Can you walk us through, Guy, the experience of using telemedicine? If somebody has not done it, maybe they've thought about it. What is it like? And then, um, you know, somebody might be thinking, what if I need a lab test, for instance? Uh, how does that work? Can you, can you walk us through the process? Uh, sure. So um, in any insurance company or probably through your employer, if you go to the insurance website, there's usually a button on there that says talk to a doctor. Or if you want a more bespoke, deep relationship, you can go to a site like SteadyMD. Uh, you sign up, you get matched with a doctor, either on demand or via our mat- We have a matching engine on our site that matches you with the perfect physician for you. And then basically it's similar to what we've all been doing the last six months, a Zoom call or a phone call with a physician who's licensed and trained to uh, do a telemedicine appointment. Um, and then if you need a lab or prescription, it's, it's not that different from the physical world. They'll call it in <laughs> and you'll have a lab order or a prescription waiting at your pharmacy or in many cases now delivered to your home. Can this replace the primary care physician? Can somebody get that done completely virtually? I think it's just, it's a, it's just a paradigm shift. Obviously, if there's a clinical need to be touched or to be viewed in person, uh, that's not going to get replaced. Um, there's a lot of technology that's being developed now and out on the market that replaces a lot of those measurements. I mean, you, you don't need to go into an office to take your blood pressure if you have a blood pressure cuff at home, right? It's, it, that's, not a, um, that's not absolutely necessary. Um, or, uh, but there's things where you still need to go in and get seen. I think uh, 80 90% can probably be handled virtually. And then, uh, and then you're always going to have that last 10% where you're going to need physical location to get seen in person. Well, and I think this also brings up, and I heard in a conversation I was having a couple of weeks ago, uh, brings up the need for what is being called website manner as opposed to bedside manner. And that is uh, our clinical physicians and, and nurses being trained uh, to still provide that type of care and compassion through a digital platform. Have you seen that type, those types of conversations happening uh, because the process of medicine, yeah, is no, I think that, that, yeah, that, yeah, that's that's yeah, it's all, that's what SteadyMD is all about. I mean, we really pioneered this idea that via an online relationship, you can actually have more time, attention, and a deeper relationship with a physician than in uh, the normal insurance-based model, where a doctor uh, really has a limited amount of time to talk to you because. They're trying to bill as many appointments as possible in the shortest amount of time. Uh, that's not the doctor's fault. Most doctors don't like that. They would like to spend as much time as necessary with the patient. But there's a lot of external pressures from either the system they're working within or the insurance company reimbursement rates that creates an incentive for doctors to move faster through the day and, and get things taken care of more quickly. Um, so I think in many ways, if you unlock the supply and capacity of a physician across a larger geography, they might have more time to spend with patients. So that was one of the key insights for studying the primary care. And we've tried to really uh, take that philosophy around establishing trust, a deeper relationship with the physician, and, um, and meeting the patient where they're at and exactly what they need in that time and taking as much time as necessary to complete an appointment and apply it to a lot of different modalities, 
even if it's an urgent care visit or a lab order, um, we still want to maintain that philosophy of trust with the patient and rigor around, we're going to take as long as it is necessary in order to take care of them. And so via an online system, you can sort of distribute the capacity of a doctor across a larger geography that makes a, makes actually more time available for the patient if they need it. We're talking with Guy Friedman, who's the co-founder and CEO of SteadyMD, telemedicine startup here in St. Louis. And you've just uh, closed a Series B venture capital round. Uh, can you tell us about that? Who was involved? And what does, uh, what does that investment go toward? Sure, absolutely. So the round was led by a Silicon Valley venture capital firm named Lux Capital. Um, an amazing group of investors. And uh, the partner joining our board is named Dina Shakir. And she's incredible. Um, also joining the round, Sound Ventures, Accru Capital, Pelion Ventures, Next Ventures, uh, Tim Draper's Fund, Draper Associates, and Wojcicki of 23andMe. So we really have a rock star group of investors who uh, believe in us and believe in our mission and vision to really be the authority on, on our space within the digital health industry. Um, the capital is going towards hiring and leveling up you know, across the whole operation, clinical operations, technology, product, uh, regulatory. So it's not really a specific O um, focus. It's just really bringing on more great people to help accelerate our vision and mission and growth. Well, tell us a little bit about growing a startup in St. Louis, especially now that you're looking at bringing on more folks. What's the talent base like here? Uh, Do we have everything you, you need to really scale this? Yeah, I mean, I think um, St. Louis has been great for us, I think, especially within healthcare. Uh, and I want to highlight the younger employees that we're getting from SLU and WashU and other universities around. Uh, fantastic, you know, entry-level or early career hires here. Because there's a lot of operational aspects to, my, to our business. We're not just software. There's hundreds of providers that we need to manage, train, and execute with for all of our digital health partners. So for that piece of the business, St. Louis has been incredible. Uh, we hire an amazing you know, group of uh, early career folks who have really helped us grow efficiently and uh, rapidly here. So I think we'll continue to grow our, our uh, employee base in St. Louis for sure. Well, we'll keep an eye on Steady MD. Thank you so much, uh, CEO Guy Friedman, for joining us. Thank you, guys. I appreciate your time. All right. That's our show. Thank you so much for joining us. Download the podcast on the new app. It's the Odyssey app. Check it out. A-U-D-A-C-Y. That's the Odyssey app. And Travis and I will be back with you for more local innovation next week. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Baseball is back, and so is MLB.tv. Watch every out-of-market, regular season game on your favorite streaming devices. Anywhere, anytime, all season long. Follow the action live or on demand. Track four games at once with multi-view mode and catch up with in-game highlights. Plus, original programs, minor league broadcasts, and local pre- and post-game shows. Go to MLB.tv to start your free trial today. 
Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission.